Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Wavelengths, an Amphenol Broadband Solutions podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the show as we explore major trends, technologies, timely news, and strategic, actionable advice for the larger telecom broadband industries. Now, as we maneuver today's conversation, which is an exciting one and has lots of voices coming to the table, I want to make sure you're all caught up on previous episodes and obviously have access to some of the context that we're going to be bringing up. So make sure that you're heading to our website, amphenolbroadband.com. Again, that's amphenolbroadband.com for more information on our solutions and services, and also for more episodes of Wavelengths. You can find uh, our video and audio versions of the podcast there on the site. You can also subscribe to Wavelengths on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous episodes as well as notifications when we drop new episodes of the show. All right, let's dive in. There's a lot to discuss and a lot of voices to platform today. So today is an exciting episode of Wavelengths, and it's really a first for the show because we're doing our first major roundtable of experts here on Wavelengths. So we have a host of incredible voices weighing in on one of the most important active developments in U.S. broadband today. It's something we've talked on before on the show. We're giving it another round here to close out the year. That's right. We're talking the deployment and execution of federal bead funding. So the U.S. Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Funding Initiatives, um, which is one of many state funding operations to revitalize and expand broadband infrastructure in the United States, has been steadily chugging along all year. Uh, last time we checked in on bead funding on the podcast was in like March of 2023. So we're just going to assume we're going to do a year in review here, more or less. Since then, we've had major updates to the bead timeline. In May, the NTIA issued its notice of funding opportunities for the bead grant program. The FCC published its online map of federally funded Broadband grant projects for uh, better visibility, excuse me. Uh, in June, the NTIA released its funding allocations for the BEAD program. And then as of basically a day ago, uh, this week, you know, for context of folks listening in here, maybe a little after we record, all 56 states and territories in the United States have submitted their proposals. So we are finally moving into a phase with BEAD where that funding is going to get deployed and it's going to get deployed thoughtfully. So now it's time to assess where we've come in the last year and what's still left to make best use of BEAD funding. So we want to ask and get some thoughts on what have been success stories from the BEAD program so far. Where have we encountered some challenges in implementation, in oversight, and proper allocation of funds? Uh, what are the expected versus the ideal impacts of BEAD and its funding pool once fully deployed and put to work? And with the current crop of proposals out there, now from all states and territories, what do we think, right? Are they sufficient? Are they strategic? Are they going to get the job done in expanding broadband, uh, excuse me, broadband access in the United States? Well, we have the pool of experts to give us their analysis today. I'm excited to introduce our bead roundtable. Let's go down the line. First up, we're joined by Zach Rayleigh. He's SVP and advisor to the CEO here at Amphenol. Zach, great to have you on. How you doing? Thanks very much, Daniel. Appreciate it and look forward to the chat. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining us. And we're also rejoined by two previous guests on the podcast. You may recognize them and their great thought leadership. First up, Mr. Ben Elkins, CEO of Airbeam. Ben, great to have you back. How are you doing? Great. Uh, thanks for having me, Daniel. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm pleased to re-welcome longtime collaborator, Miss Diana Guvert, executive editor of Fierce Telecom and Silver Linings. Diana, always a treat. How are you doing today? Thrilled to be here today. And sorry in advance if you hear my dogs. Joys of working from home. We have some flavor and character in the background of the podcast today. <laughs> I'm always appreciative of some, you know, pet joy. So I love it. Diana, Ben, and Zach, thank you again for joining us on this roundtable. Um we have a lot to cover and limited time, so let's get right to the meat of it. Again, we've touched base on, we have all proposals in from all states and territories. We've had basically the entire year with major updates, allocation of funds, and now proposals on how to spend those funds state to state to state to territory to territory, right? I want to just start with some general thoughts. Let's get the conversation rolling before I dig in on some specifics. Uh, what are y'all's thoughts on... I guess the general management of the bead program, bead funds, and kind of where we've landed now with these allocations and proposals for spending said funds, any initial reactions based on progress over the last 12 months? Whoever wants to jump in first. I'm happy to jump in um, and just set the stage before I let Ben and Zach kind of take it away with the nitty gritty because, right, you guys are providers. You're probably in the trenches, but I can kind of provide some background information from um, a contextual point of view. So um, the thing about BEAD is that the states have to kind of go through a process of different drafts of their plans, right? So as you said, Daniel, all 56 states and territories have submitted volume one of their draft with the NTIA. That then had to go out to public comment. Uh, then the revised version of that gets submitted to the NTIA for approval. And then they do it all again with volume two. And that's all before the money can get awarded. And there are, I think, uh, six, seven states that are at the uh, volume two submitted to the NTIA proposal uh, for approval. Uh, that's Louisiana, Virginia, Delaware, Kansas, Nevada, and I think Vermont. Uh, once that's approved, those states can go ahead and uh, start um, their competitive bid process. And that's the process through which um, operators will go ahead and uh, submit some proposals. They'll get scored by the states, and then the states will decide who to award the money to. Um, and the, the timing of this podcast is actually perfect because we just had our U.S. Broadband Summit um, in Washington, D.C. last week. And some of the key issues that we've been hearing around BEAD um, include making sure that the states get enough applicants in the first place for the BEAD funding, making sure that those applicants are qualified, um, and also making sure to smooth the path for applicants. So not putting so many requirements in the state plans that they create new roadblocks for operators who are already facing things like permitting issues and pull attachment issues. Um, so that's some of the stuff we heard along with workforce issues. But uh, I'll leave it to Ben and Zach to kind of chime in from the operator perspective for sure. Yeah. Um I'll, I'll jump in from an Arizona perspective, which which where Airbnb uh, hails from. Even though we we are in different states, our, our headquarters is in Arizona. And from a perspective here, one of the great things I think that B did was the, the challenge uh, program, being able to challenge uh, on the on the map. Some of the leks were uh, less than ethical on uh, on what was served and what was underserved. And I think that, for instance, in Arizona, uh, just through the challenge process, uh, there was another 180 million dollars found. Um, magically, 
through uh, the challenge process, which uh, greatly enhances the state's ability to do what we're supposed to do, right? Uh, you know, get the underserved served. So I think, uh, you know, in Arizona, we're almost to a billion dollars. And so almost 20% of our funds were through the challenge process. So I think that was a great, uh, great addition from the expanding, extending the out the, uh, the process, I guess. Mm. No, and, and maybe, um, and I'll, Diana, just to maybe clarify. So we, I'll bring a little bit of a uh, different flavor to this because we, we're a heavy supplier into the actual equipment and hardware that's going to enable a lot of this. And, you know, they're, you know, from a, just a high level perspective, right? I mean, the, the, the BEAT Act is the largest infrastructure act as part of the large infrastructure, but it's the largest infrastructure act for wireling, wired sort of connectivity since the Roosevelt uh, 1938 uh, Rural Electrification Act. Um, it is, it's a huge amount of money. Uh, I think it's a needed amount of money across much of the rural space. So it, it's going to be a very dynamic time. Um, you know, we are in, uh, my, me personally, uh, I'm in nearly weekly discussions with the NTIA on uh, how this deployment is going to be enacted uh, in terms of what's going to go in from an equipment perspective. Uh, and that's actually, um, to your question, Daniel, I think it's a big challenge because if we had to say today uh, in, in a typical um, fiber build, which, you know, the, the NTIA and certainly the Office of Budget has been very direct in indicating the preference for fiber optic deployment. We can talk about the effectiveness of that or the reality of that, uh, certainly through the podcast. But I do think that, um, you know, if you had to say, turn the switch on today, start building plant, couldn't happen. Uh, the product is not really ready in terms of the ability to meet the requirements of the build in America uh, aspect uh, that the Office of Budget is mandating for much of this. There are some waivers that have come out. Um, so we hear from many of our operator partners that that's a big challenge. And, um, you know, particularly in the side of electronics uh, and certain of the optical transport equipment, uh, there's going to be a lot of heavy lifting that has to get done uh, relatively soon to make this happen if the bills are going to start in 2024. So um, we've been very active uh, along in, and with partnership uh, with a lot of our service provider customers on how do we help the government officials create a policy around um, the actual deployment of equipment that is going to be effective. Um, as you might imagine, we've been deploying equipment for much of you know the, the current build structure for maybe the non-rural areas, um, those some rural areas, certainly in Ardoff, um, that have been um, you know not subject to some of those build in America requirements. So uh, it, it's gonna be a challenge um, to essentially shift a very significant portion of that supply chain away from some of the overseas structures that exist today uh, into a, a deployable structure that, you know, we can make, um, you know, at or, or inside uh, the North American market uh, and particularly in the United States uh, to be able to uh, to do this. There's been a lot of investment that a lot of people are doing that's been very um, forward, you know, companies like Nokia building factories to help with uh, some of the optical transport equipment, uh, et cetera. And I think, you know, that'll be a, a significant challenge, right? You've got the labor challenge, which you mentioned earlier, which, you know, maybe Ben could comment on. That's clearly going to be a challenge. Um, but, you know, it's great. It'll be great to have people to build it. But if you don't have equipment to put up uh, that meets requirements, you're probably not going to do much in terms of expanding your network. So, Yeah. And sorry to jump in, but the timing of that comment is also perfect because uh, to your point, Zach, like a, a ton of folks, you had mentioned Nokia uh, is bringing manufacturing of certain components back to the U.S. to comply with those Buy American requirements. Uh, for people who don't know, that means that I think it's 
55%, correct me if I'm wrong, it's 55 or some somewhere yeah. thereabouts uh, yeah. has to be made in the U.S. Correct. Yeah, 55% U.S. component content, and it has to be manufactured, i.e. it has to come out of the door of a U.S. facility. Those are the general requirements under uh, the BABA Act, which is the Build America, Buy America Act. Um, but then there are some waivers that, that sort of are shifting a little bit, uh, nuances that are going to come out of that, um, that are sort of a bit of a moving target. Um, but, you know, we're trying to, to help um, certainly uh, the government offices to, to, to really make sure that we can not be a gating factor uh, in terms of the equipment that goes into this. Um, but there are a lot of, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of the high level, but there's going to be some variability uh, based on the fact that, you know, if you had to do that in certain instances, you'd never have a product going out your door. So, you know, you got to, I think there, there's some significant and very thoughtful processes going on right now, particularly at the NTIA to make that something that, you know, is not going to be a gating factor as we try to launch this, uh, launch this program. And that's something as a, a trade journalist that we've been hearing a lot about the back and forth between you guys and the NTIA about, you know, is this even feasible? Um, you know, Nokia, STL, uh, I think Sienna just came out with a domestic manufacturing thing, Corning, Comscope. It's, it's stuff that, yeah, everybody's really trying to address. So this isn't just kind of like a background issue. This is actually at the forefront of even if the money is awarded, they can't start building these networks without the equipment that complies with that funding requirement. So this is like a major issue that nobody knows about unless you're in the industry. So uh, to anybody listening, pay attention to what's going on in this space for sure. Yeah. And Zach, to your point there, we actually even had to switch gears and, and pick different vendors than we normally would have sure. because of that. Um, and we started doing that, I don't know, nine months ago just in preparation, even though out here in a couple of states we're going to be in, Arizona, Utah, and a couple others, it may not start till 2025. Uh, we figured we needed at least a year and a half to get ready. From, no, no, from you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, you're, if you think about, right, that the entirety, let's just talk kind of pre-bead. So pre-bead, um, you know, for a fiber-heavy deployment, um, I would, while I wouldn't say that the vast majority of the, of the product came from overseas, you're probably at an 85 to 87% level of all of the stuff that came into from an overseas perspective, just because of the way global supply chains had been migrated over the years. Um, so you're requiring a pretty big shift to, to enable that to come back uh, to the United States. There's certainly some governmental logic to it, right? I mean, the fact that you can use bead as the starting point to make more indigenous capability from a product standpoint um, and sort of initiate that uh, for then, you know, what will be probably, the, I don't have a great word for it, but let's call it the fiberification of the North American communications infrastructure, where, you know, right now you have kind of blended architectures. And then in the future, you know, you want to migrate essentially the entirety of the U.S. network to a fiber optic platform because it is the fastest and probably is the future of, of communications for many applications. Um, so it, there is some logic to it. So I think this the starting of this process does have some long term health uh, for the industry and certainly uh, to, to de-risk some of the, the globalization issues that are certainly coming to the forefront in today's world. Uh, so. I think you're right, Ben. The, the, the reality of having to start thinking about that now, I, I'm, I know everybody is, uh, is, is very much a true. And we're, you know, as a company, we're, we're significantly um, considering, you know, dramatic uh, shifts in production locations and, and certainly a lot of investment in, in the U.S. market uh, in terms of manufacturing. So uh, it's something that we're all faced with and, you know, we're probably going to have to do is this, is this is rolling. I'd love to hear more about that. Zach. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> 
Yeah, let's let's you know further pick at this larger kind of supply chain or sort of cross. Yeah, it's it's cross industry, but almost like cross sub industry coordination that needs to happen to make sure that once you know proposals are accepted, once build out of infrastructure actually starts to happen. Well, it can happen, right? And so I, I'm curious what y'all think are some of the major. I mean, beyond the sort of, you know, Buy America um, layer of all of this, what are some of the supply chain challenges, the kind of coordination between manufacturing entities, public entities, um, you know, the equipment suppliers, the utilities themselves? Um, what are some of the challenges in that coordination that y'all have found have really reared their heads as everyone is trying to align and get their ducks in a row in anticipation of building out these projects and any thoughts on how to turn those challenges into solutions? Well, I guess I'll start on this one. I mean, I think right now is a heck of an opportunity because um, a lot with a lot of the providers out there, whether they want to admit it or not, money is tighter um, from a, from an operator standpoint. So what's happening right now today is there's less fiber builds being built right now than say there was a year ago. So what's happening is there's actually a surplus of equipment on the fiber side, conduit side, stuff like that. What I have been doing is doing a stockpile because the pricing, the price points right now are incredible uh, for conduit fiber, different things, vaults, pedestals, stuff like that. And I'm trying to create like a little arsenal. Um, I guess you could call it in, in my warehouses. So not only will I be prepared if I'm lucky enough to win some, um, some of the grants, but if not, I know I'll be able to sell it or whatever. Um, down the road. But I think right now is a really good opportunity to get ahead of it because I do think sometime, I don't know if it's going to be mid next year or, um, or when there's going to be that the, the pricing is going to go up and there's going to be a shortage of this equipment and, and supplies. So I think right now is definitely a great opportunity. Tough to challenge that with, uh, you know, the cash flow is tighter, right? So there's a, you know, a difficult road you have to walk down. But if you have the, some, some CapEx, um, money available. I think that's a definite, well, well, good spend right now. Hey Ben, from a from a, an industry perspective, right? You've got you've got kind of an interesting. I wouldn't call it a dichotomy, maybe a trichotomy, right? Because you have you have the traditional what you might consider a tier one, right? An ILEC, a Comcast, a, a, a Charter Communications, Cox. that may yeah. be a Cox. You've got a sort of the, the secondary layer of you know the the smaller players, Lumens of the world, and that. Then you know you've got. The, you know, municipalities, smaller companies, um, maybe even towns and, and you know, electric co-ops. You know, so you've got this very interesting dynamic developing about who's going to build these networks. Um, do you think that aside from the, the big folks in that sort of let's call it tier two, tier three, maybe even tier four layer, is there going to be an advent of capital flow that comes out of VC, venture capital or private equity that sort of looks to say, hey, you know, we could get get into some of these markets exploratorily because it's going to create fragmentation, right? You're going to have significant fragmentation of new players in the market space. What do you think? Because again, to your point on funding and, and the tightness of capital, right? As interest rates start to come down and they will, you know, you're going to see probably some movement in terms of where that capital could come from. But, you know, being on the offside, what do you think is going to happen within that funding space for, for sort of some of the call it mid to smaller players that might be going after some of this market. Well, Zach, there, there's a lot of smaller guys that are very, very worried about the capital um, constraints because a lot of the big uh, BC guys are ponied up already with the your tier ones, right? Your Comcast, your AT&Ts, um, you know, your, your Coxes. I don't need to say a part of that 
kind of. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the smaller guy is definitely going to have to go uh, to get some private equity money. And I think they will be able to get that because I agree with you. Out of six months, nine months, 12 months, the interest rates are going to start to come down and then they'll be able to get it more affordable um, to get involved in this. That's the only way they're going to be able to compete, though, because there is so I mean, this is a very expensive game. Mm-hmm. But I do think um, they're going to have to partner up because if they try to do this on their own, they're not going to be able to come up with the match and then they're not going to be able to fund this. And sure. it's, it's going to be very, very. I think it's going to be very uh, much more competitive than people think. Um, and you're going to need a lot of capital to not only to deploy it, but to, to deploy it right and also have the backing that the states and the NTIA want um, and just have the bond amounts. And it's, it's, not a, it's not a game for the weak at heart. So to your point, I think they're going to have to find your partner. And you're going to have to find your dance partner somewhere out there, and that's going to be in, in the VC. And I think a lot of that mid-tier, I worry about the real small guy if he's going to have a chance, Zach. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really do. I think that a lot of it's going to depend on the relationships that you developed with your broadband director of your state, because if you have not done that and you've let the the middle guys or the, the tier ones build that relationship, because they want it, they want to spread it out to all. I think I think in a perfect world they'd like to have you know two or three projects for you know eight or ten companies or whatever it is. But if you haven't built that relationship with that and you're a small guy and you're tight on funds, I think you're in a you know, big disadvantage. Yeah, sure. Well, and there's another factor at play too, right? So it's it's not just that you need the money to deploy it. You also need to make sure that um, you have good enough financial backing to maintain it going forward. So um, a lot of these builds are going to be taking place in low density rural environments. Um, and those just don't have the ROI. Um, so unless you have a really solid business um, and or the financial backing from a private equity partner to help you manage that um, going forward, that can be an issue. Also, the fate of the Affordable Care, uh, no, the Affordable Connectivity Act um, could also influence this. That is making sure that a lot of uh, lower income people stay connected um, via that $30 a month subsidy. Uh, if that goes away, and these folks build out to all these places and then suddenly nobody can afford to connect. What's the point? Um, so, I mean, that's another whole other discussion about what needs to be done beyond deployment. Um, but I think one of the other threads I wanted to kind of pull at, uh, if you'll humor me, Daniel, <laughs> uh, is just the idea of timelines. Right. There are so many moving parts and so many moving pieces. So it's not just the timeline of the manufacturing that needs to be pulled back stateside. It's also uh, the financing element that Ben talked about. It's also the workforce element. Um, So last week at our U.S. Broadband Summit, some of the folks were talking about how they're already training workers, but they're finding uh, either that the operators just aren't hiring because they're waiting to see whether or not they win money or operators are hiring, but they're hiring out of state. So states are training up all these workers and then they're just leaving and going elsewhere. And so the timelines of all of these giant pieces of the puzzle uh, have to come together. And it is one heck of a juggling act. (laughs) Let me tell you, the NTIA certainly has their hands full. State broadband offices haven't helped them because some of them that were on stage said their office consists of three people. So this is not a small undertaking and it's being done by a handful of people who are probably working their hearts out. <laughs> I was just going to make a quick comment about the labor. 
Um, you know, I think that's a key point. And I, I'll just, just quickly on the labor piece, um, you know, with Davis Bacon uh, prevailing wages also is going to make it a huge challenge. Uh, in a lot of states, you know, they're not used to paying those kind of wages. So to be able to afford to pay those wages and be compliant uh, under that is going to be tricky. I think um, you're going to have to do some sort of hybrid. That's what we're planning anyway, to where you're going to have to have some of your own staff, no matter where it is, because it's so rural, because it's going to be tough to find labor in some of these rural areas. You're going to have to have some of your own team along with the contractor element. If you don't do both, I think you're going to be really against the eight ball because I think it's going to be really, really hard to make this all work, pencil out financially and even possible to get people to go out in the middle of Timbuktu to, to, to hit certain areas, right? If you don't have your own team, so. No, and you know, it's interesting. I think you know, a corollary to sort of the labor side, though that's very labor related is that, you know, if you look at, if you look at the success and let's call it success of the ARDOF program, <clears throat> which didn't have certainly the supply chain issues. I'd had some of them just in terms of ramping back into normal supply chain from the COVID era. But the reality is that, <clears throat> you know, there was definitely a squeeze that happened even with a very significant, um, significant, less significant pool of funding. Um, what we did see in, in that environment is two really interesting things. One, um, the the challenges of getting overhead pole attachments became really a major gating factor in terms of getting product, getting new fiber attached to poles that electrical utilities owned or, or municipalities may own. Um, and that, that actually drove a, a very interesting dynamic that we didn't expect to see. And that is a lot more underground installation um, than was expected, you know, as we went into the RDOF program. So, you know, there, there's some significant nuances. Ben, you mentioned, you know, putting conduit and stock and all of that. Significant nuances to, to building an underground versus an aerial plant. Um, you know, the fact that you've got electric utilities probably bidding on some of this um, fiber architecture, uh, you know, they own the pole, they're bidding on it. Are they going to be a problem in terms of getting attachment? You know, there's some, some interesting dynamic there that could drive certainly some, you know, need for, do you need people that can work in overhead trucks? Do you need people that are familiar with trenching? You know, those are, those are aspects that I think are going to be very interesting from a labor force standpoint. Um, but I think, Diana, to your point, um, what is interesting is the stickiness in the rural markets is from our operator folks that we work with, um, you know, the stickiness when they deploy in the rural markets is like two to two and a half times higher in terms of initial pass rate penetration in a rural build than they see in a normal suburban build. So what does that tell you, right? When they're getting between 65 and 85% penetration on pass, I mean, that tells you there's something that's really needed, right? When people are like, you know, they, they go into a, a, even if it's like five, six, eight, 10, 12 homes a mile, um, their rates of uptake are just dramatically better. And actually the hold rate in terms of churn is almost, there's no churn because there's no other option, right? So I think you're gonna, you know, how much of that is driven by, you know, the subsidy, $35 a month subsidy in terms of allowing people to get access versus, you know, it's kind of like a utility, right? You gotta have power and you gotta have water. In today's world, you gotta have internet. So you, you have to wonder how that's going to you know create some some interesting dynamic as we see that. But clearly, you know, everybody who played in Ardoff saw some really positive results. Um, you know, obviously funded uh, on the back of obviously you know enabled on back of government funding, um, but certainly in terms of you know what they normally saw in terms of uptake and, and retention rate. Um, you know, that's pretty promising. I think for the the success long term success of the program. Uh, just to your point about pole attachments, yeah. 
really interesting. I am super interested to watch how the landscape changes because uh, a ton of electric co-ops have been getting into the broadband game. That's been something we've been watching on Fierce Telecom. But also, it's not just about pole attachments. Um, the other big issue, uh, the other big gating factor, uh, as you put it, has been permitting. Sure. Um, and the thing is, is yeah, I was talking about teeny tiny little uh, state broadband offices. Talk about teeny tiny little towns. They might have one person who is the clerk and the, you know, fire inspector. You know, these are not big towns. They don't have a huge amount of um, municipal staff or resources to process all these permits. Um, so I think that beyond just the state broadband offices, um, states are going to have to think long and hard about the resources that they allocate to uh, local municipalities to help field some of these um, permits that are coming in to help uh, those officials actually understand what's being put in. Um, I used to be a community reporter up in New Jersey before I got into the broadband industry. And, you know, you would sit through a public meeting and they're talking about cell towers or, you know, a broadband bill. They don't know what this is. And that's not, you know, that's not talking down about anybody, but I didn't know either before I got into broadband. So I think education is also going to be key as well as um, some staffing resources or some sort of resource to, to help local, local municipal officials um, get through the permitting process. I'm going to jump in here if, if you don't mind and just pick at that a little bit, because it seems like we're coming back around often to the people that are going to make this happen workforce development, training, um, coordination. I mean, identifying slices of the infrastructure build out pie that just don't have the, you know, the proverbial manpower to make it happen. And um, I want to use this as kind of like a bridge into talking about Diana, like you just mentioned, specific state funding and allocation, right, uh, of said funds intentionally across different slices of building out broadband intentionally. Um, states are approaching that differently. Obviously, again, we have all 56 states and territories with proposals out there. I'll bring up two examples to just kind of foster discussion. But for example, in Arkansas, um, they're going to utilize or they plan to utilize their around a billion dollars to not only obviously allocate funds to serve inadequately connected areas, but also expand their Arkansas Fiber Academy, which is specifically for skilled worker development. So Arkansas has got that in mind there, right? In Florida, for example, um, they took advantage of Ben, uh, you know, what you brought up earlier, the challenge process to designate copper line broadband areas as underserved. And then um, they have a method to reclassify locations as unserved based on speed tests. So they can then prioritize those for fundings. Uh, so there's just some examples of how states are strategically trying to maneuver taking those funds and deploying them correctly where they're most needed. So, you know, not only just on the on the workforce side of things, but just in general, what are y'all's reactions to some of these proposals? If you have any specific examples of ones that stand out to you or that, you know, for good or bad reasons, feel free to pitch them. But even just generally, do you feel like these proposals are laying out funding plans that are making best use of these dollars to address all the challenges from supply chain to workforce to coordination to literal just, you know, equipment build out that we've been talking about here today. What are y'all's thoughts? I'll go ahead and jump on this one. So um, 
from a perspective on what I've seen is first off, you got to have extra money right out of the pool to do some of these cool things. Right. And some of the states have done this and it was really brilliant. Um, they extended out the process. Right. So if you remember when this started, I mean, a lot of folks thought that B would be kind of being awarded next month or, you know, 2024, January, them extending this out a whole year in some cases longer. What it's done is like, let's say for instance, let's use the state of, I don't know, Arizona or Texas or whoever. Um, I know for instance, in Arizona, I believe that next year at this time when it'll start getting awarded in December or January, I believe 10 to 15% of the map we taken off by people getting itchy trigger finger and going ahead and saying, well, I'm going to go ahead and, and build in that area and take it right off the map. So you're talking about 100, 150, 200 million dollars off that the state then can use for cool projects like you said in Arkansas for training or maybe uh, building infrastructure highway and helping, you know, different, whatever the project is for that state. I think that as an operator, I didn't love seeing because you're watching a lot of the beat just go away. Um, and I'm guilty of it too. But at the same time, um, uh, it's really cool from the state's perspective of helping out the state and having extra funds for some of the cool products that projects that you mentioned. Yeah, you know, I think from for, certainly from a uh, from a state perspective, right? I think the example of getting ahead of the labor curve here is going to be really important. Uh, you know, don't lose sight of the fact that that bead is important, but it's actually um, a part of a much larger funding act under the Infrastructure Act, and there are there are other networks, in particular the EV charge network, that are going to suck people away, right? I mean, it's it's not the same skill set, obviously, but you know, if you're training people to build, you know, the next 400,000 EV chargers at site stations and you know, gas stations and, you know, municipal areas, yeah, it's a huge amount of people that are going to have to build and go into that environment. And they're going to be competing, right, with folks that, you know, may be looking into the beat environment. So getting ahead of that training curve, um, where clearly today there will not be enough people. There's just no question in my mind, there are not going to be enough contractors installers to do this. Um, and I think that that's going to be a really critical part I think, Diane, your point is, you know, how do you start putting all of this together? I would say that the process of, you know, the feds coming up with the program, you know, getting in the states, states getting applications. And I would say that's actually been moving kind of according to schedule. But all the stuff that has to make it happen once they say you're approved, you're going to get the money right from there forward. I think we're probably in a bit of a lag. I think there's not, you know, we've sort of been very focal on not we, but we as a country have been very focal on, you know, sort of getting these um, applications in and, you know, figuring out who it's going to be. The states will then go back and start making their decisions on who gets what that'll get finally approved. But then it's a matter of, you know, what do you got to do to make it happen? And I think there is some lag that we're going to see um, certainly across many of these areas, uh, whether it be labor, you know, supply chain uh, and certainly uh, the ability to attach or get permitting, um, you know, to, to the point Diane you made earlier. It's just there's not. You know, because again, think about it, right? I mean, if you if you went back to Roosevelt era, nineteen thirty eight, you know, when they started the rural electrification program, I would guess there's exact analogs to this whole process because the reality is you went from essentially not having anything to having to build it all out in a very compressed time period with lots and lots and lots of miles to be built. Um, you know, that's just we're not prepped for it. <laughs> just in reality, so it's going to take. Uh, a lot of lifting at the state, local, you know, state and local levels to, to really make this happen. 
Yeah, and uh, if you'll allow me to toot Fierce Telecom's horn here, um, we actually just partnered with uh, TIA. We're going to be launching a workforce development portal called Broadband Nation with them. Um, again, this is to kind of... Uh, a, educate people. So, you know, it'll have videos uh, showcasing what does a fiber splicer even do? Uh, you know, kind of let people know what it's like to be a broadband technician, a day in the life of. Um, it'll also help coordinate um, job listings and certification programs so people can see what's available near them, right? So not all of these programs are available in every state. Uh, some states have their own programs. Um, and so what we are trying to do working with TIA is kind of help connect people to those resources, because as you said, Zach, there's going to be a huge shortfall. There's like something like 200,000 jobs that need to be filled um, in order to make BEAT happen. And without some sort of coordinated effort, it's just not going to come together. Um, and one of the other things that we heard at our recent summit was that um, states are taking you know, different recruiting recruiting paths. So they're they're going after military folks. They're starting apprenticeship programs. They're looking at uh, tribal populations to kind of help them. Um, and then they're also going to um, in the prison systems. Um, and one of the problems that they found there is that some operators would not like to hire those people. Um, and in some states, you can't ask that question uh, on your. Um, you know, job application and on others you can. So figuring out where all of that comes together um, is its own problem. But yeah, to Zach's point, it, it really needs to kind of be sorted through and there needs to be a coordinated effort on the forward looking stuff, not just the immediate getting money out the door because yeah, you can get the money out the door and then it's gonna sit there. So <laughs> gotta look ahead a little bit. Ben, what are, what are your thoughts on, you know, sort of as we get into this, the willingness at the federal and state level to maybe say, you know what, we just can't do this with a straight fiber build. We got to go to a different technology, right? Whether those are point to point wireless, you know, 5G deployments. What, what's your thought about the, the loosening up of sort of the very fiber focused effort? Do you think that's a, a, a reality or is it a, a real challenge? It's funny you mentioned that. So I, I have many talks with our broadband director uh, in, in Arizona and we, we also in Utah and you know, Arizona is a very diverse state as far as terrain goes. In Phoenix or Tucson, it's very flat and very, you know, urban-like. You get in rural parts, um, it's very mountainy. Flagstaff, Sedona, uh, White Mountains. Uh, and I've always been curious, are we going to be able to do fiber um, in, in certain areas? And, you know, that you go down a, a trench in a mile and a half road to get to one house. Now, does that really make sense? And for the last year and a half, I've heard, oh, yeah, we're going to do fiber. And then all of a sudden, the last 90 to 120 days, this fixed wireless component comes in. And it, it's a real, it's going to happen. So um, for us, we are prepared for it. We have a, a segment of our business that is fixed wireless. Um, it's not a product that uh, I would say is my gold standard product at all. But at the same time, we're going to make it one that, uh, you know, it has to be, it's, when I compare it gold standard versus like a fiber, like it's not ever going to do, give out five gigs or something like that. But at the same time, it's the only way the state's going to be able to provide high, high speed internet to rural folks. So the money would get chewed up if you'd have to, because you know, at the end of the day, you have to be able to provide internet service to every single home or theoretically give that option. And so it, it's a reality. It's going to happen. And I think it's going to be somewhere around 10, 15% of the, of the build-outs are going to be at that. So that's what we're prepared for. And, um, 
You know, it wasn't something I was prepared for, though. If you'd asked me this, um, Zach, in June, I would have said you were crazy. But now it's it's a reality that's going to happen. How about, um, as you mentioned it, uh, Diana, just briefly, but, you know, a big aspect, not a big aspect, but a meaningful aspect of, you know, this whole funding act is the tribal nation uh, in- enablement for broadband, but also what the USDA is doing in um the agricultural space, right, for large-scale farms and, you know, uh, road operations. Um, Because you, in your state, you have a lot of both of those, right? You have a a very significant tribal nation population. You also have a lot of agriculture in Arizona. Do you see any of that dynamic starting to flow in terms of people uh, questioning about how that might work in terms of uh, those two aspects? So, you know, on the tribal side, you know, that's an interesting one because the tribal side, they want to partner with uh, companies. So they are, because they're going to be funded, whether it's BEAD or through the other grants, they're going to have funding. And I think there's an opportunity there. I actually do. And I, I'm actually one that's um, engaging and going to try to work out something um, with that. So I, I like that, especially in certain segments. Now, the only difficult part is sometimes that the tribal is political and uh, sometimes it's, it's tough to, to make a deal with them. But um, and they definitely want to be, say, a 51 percent owner in that um, component. So there are some different elements, but the cool thing is, is um, almost every deal I've ever done with in that segment, they want the workforce will be there from the tribe. So you can recruit from the, the tribal community. So that eliminates, because a lot of times you're like, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to serve this community properly? Well, they're going to, you can get the workforce from that community. You can train them up from there and you have your workforce built in. And now that, like that I mentioned earlier on the ACP, um, it's a $75 um, rebate from the tribal um, side. So your ARPU is going to go up to 75 instead of the 30. So that's attractive to an operator too. Now there are 101 challenges with providing fixed wireless service in the middle of, um, you know, the Navajo nation in, in Arizona or in Oklahoma and in, in Cherokee nation or whatever. But that being said, if you can get over some of the, the obstacles there, I think there's a, there is a business model that pencils out. So then let's end on a more actionable note then. Um, you know, we've, we've, I think, landed at the conclusion, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that, you know, bead funding in terms of dollar amount is useful. It can be strategically deployed, you know, even if considered maybe not enough. It is enough to do something, to move the needle in a positive direction. But there are still major buckets of the equation that there just aren't e-solutions for yet. How are we going to fill 200,000 um, you know, jobs to make bead funding happen? How are we going to prepare the supply chain for movement of equipment and goods to actually build out the infrastructure? Um, you know, How are we going to make sure to educate all needed parties on, you know, especially public servants on how to make sense of implementing this infrastructure thoughtfully and in an informed way. So where would each of y'all put the most focus in terms of the, um, I guess like short-term action plan strategies, right? Where do where does the industry need to find some consensus and really put their energy to prepare for the future of bead for the next year of development of deployment of funds and of you know hopefully the fulfillment of actually connecting the U.S. with some broadband? 
I could go pretty quickly and succinctly. Uh, I would probably say workforce efforts, uh, first and foremost, to get the uh, networks actually deployed. And secondly, I would say outreach, uh, whether that's digital literacy efforts, uh, whether that is making sure people know what fiber is and, and why it's important and what it can enable, um, or even just broadband generally, in fact. Um, you know, I think that'll be really important because some of the people who aren't connected choose not to be connected, um, whether that's because they don't know how to use the Internet or um, it, because they just think they don't need it. Um, so I think education, digital literacy uh, and in terms of deployment, workforce development will be key to, to making the success going forward. Off the grid, Diana. That's what they want to be off the grid. Um, I, I would just say, um, from from our perspective, a lot of what Diana said. I mean, the labor force is a real is a concern. I think you're going to have to do a hybrid model of make sure you get your contractors ahead of time and get them like locked in. And then, as, as far as beefing up your own construction and installation team, and then be it like Diana mentioned earlier, you have to be able to service them for the next five, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty years and have a plan for that. It's one thing to get the money and then deploy it, but how are you going to operate it afterwards? So you got to have a plan for that. From um, a perspective from the government, I I hope that there is some, I want to say leniency, but some cooperation with things like NEPA um, and the environmental studies and stuff like that, because that can hold up things for years. Uh, supposedly, that's, that's going to be on the permitting and NEPA side that's going to be uh, addressed, and they're going to be uh, working with us. Be, so, I mean, to do this in a timely fashion, you know, those things can be really, really ugly and really, really long. And I'm not saying going destroying the Grand Canyon or anything, but what I'm I'm saying is, you know, have a have a have a have a situation where it's a working relationship with the environmental folks and the in the NEPA studies and stuff like that. So I think if we can get work as a as a team, um, you know, environmental labor, construction, government, everyone works together. I think this could really work out and I think it'll be great for the community. And like Zach mentioned before on the the supply chain, making sure that you plan for this. I think that's huge. I think getting your your stuff now is better than waiting. Because I do think, Zach mentioned earlier, I think it's a real, real thing, whether it be fiber or uh, pole attachments or bolts or pedestals, whatever it is, I think you better prepare now because I think there could be a, a shortage of that later on. And so. No, and I, from the equipment side, you know, I think, I think getting the guidelines uh, really pin down, uh, you know, wh whether they're challenging or not challenging, just knowing what they are is going to be really helpful. And, you know, being able to then say, okay, we now know what the game plan is uh, in terms of having to meet the rule set that uh, certainly the Office of Budget puts out, um, you know, that'll be really helpful for the suppliers across the entire space to be able to say, okay, now I know what I need to do. Let's starting let's start to get this aligned so we can get it set up for, you know, uh, I would say initial deployment coming mid 20, you know, not dramatic increases, but certainly initial deployment starting in 2024. So getting that done, which I know, um, you know, the folks at the NTIA are very, uh, very keen to, to do here very, very soon uh, will really help the supply side uh, start buttoning down and figuring out how we're going to make this happen. Um, but it'll be, uh, it'll certainly be interesting <laughs> to see where that all goes. And there's obviously still so much to come. I mean, if anything, you know, we've we've been at this for a while now with Bead and uh, with other sort of, you know, state funded uh, broadband infrastructure build out projects. And we're just now getting to the point where we can start to visualize building them out. 
and yet it almost feels like the challenges are just starting. So there's a lot of work to be done, and we're bound to have more conversations here on Wavelengths where we open up discussion and do more of this strategic, actionable, um, you know, open-ended forums where we can find some consensus and hopefully give our audience of pros in the industry some tools to get out there and build that consensus wherever their slice may fall in the larger telecom industry. But till then, we'll go ahead and wrap up today's roundtable here on bead funding, bead updates. Where have we come from? What's the current state of it? And what's on the horizon? So thank you again to the three of y'all for such a great conversation. I mean, you know it's a good conversation when the host gets to sit back and listen. So I had a great time just enjoying, um, you know, y'all's analysis and crosstalk. So thank you for coming so prepared and for giving our audience something juicy to chew on. I'll go ahead and um, wrap things up with just some opportunities for y'all to pitch yourselves here. So, uh, Diana, if folks want to learn a little bit more about uh, Fierce Telecom, y'all's partnerships now as part of this larger program, um, or just get in touch, how can they do so? Yeah, super simple. Uh, head over to fiercetelecom.com. Um, my email address is dguverts at questx.com. Uh, you can also check out our cloud focus site, which is silverliningsinfo.com. Uh, we would look forward to seeing you guys on the site. Love it. Ben, same question to you. If folks want to learn more about Airbeam, um, you know, their rollout in Arizona, uh, or just get in touch with you for some thought leadership. How can they do so? Yeah, you can uh, go to airbeam.com, uh, go to our website. Uh, we're, we're part of uh, Boston Omaha Broadband, which is Boston Omaha Corp. Uh, we have three other sister companies that, that are all over the country. So uh, Airbeam's expanding all over the U.S., and, and we're really excited. And we do it in a very regional and a specific industry-wide. So love to talk to folks about that, and uh, either LinkedIn or our website. I'm always easy to talk to, so you guys can reach out. Love it. Last but not least, Zach, if folks want to learn a little bit more about Amphenol and its role as, you know, one of the leading uh, suppliers of key equipment for this next phase of bead uh, infrastructure rollout and development, how can they get in touch? How can they learn more about you and your work? Sure. Uh, you know, our Amphenol Communication Solutions Group, uh, very visible on uh, the web. Uh, certainly just Google it and come up. Uh, drop me a line, zrayley at amphenol.com anytime. And, you know, our, our dramatically large U.S. footprint for our manufacturing locations for all of this stuff is something that, you know, we're already in process on not only uh, currently operating today, but expanding pretty dramatically. Uh, so we're going to be ready for that curve when it hits. And I think our alignment with uh, all the great folks uh, at the NTIA have been really helpful to, to give us some guidance uh, is going to get us uh, ahead of the game. And we're happy to help support this. It's uh you know, we're looking forward to it, but uh, it's going to be some challenges to get this thing rolling. But I think when it's full steam, you're going to you're going to see it. I'll, I'll close with saying, you know, you think about it this way. There's 22 to 25 million completely underserved Americans for broadband access. What we're going to do in the next three to five years is essentially build another Comcast or charter. That's what we're doing. And they have probably a million four to a million and a half miles of plant. That's the scale. But the scale actually may be more because you're in a rural area. It could be 3 million miles of plant. So it, this is a, it's not small <laughs> and it's going to be a, a, an interesting ride and certainly one that's going to have its ups and downs, but it's a massive opportunity for the industry. And I really look forward to being a part of it. It's an exciting time to be in the industry. That's for sure. Diana, Ben, Zach, thank you again for your time here on Wavelengths. 
It's been such a pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Wavelengths, an Amphenol Broadband Solutions podcast. If you like what you heard and saw today and you want to be part of the next roundtable, you want to make sure you don't miss out on future updates to BEAD or just tap into larger thought leadership here on the development and evolution of the telecom industry, make sure that you're heading to our website, amphenolbroadband.com. Again, amphenolbroadband.com. And make sure that you're subscribing to Wavelengths on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. We'll catch you on the next episode of Wavelengths. <laughs>